You've heard of Jehovah's Witnesses. They've likely knocked on your door before. But do you really know who they are? Today, we're going to talk about this group, their history, and their background. Guys, it's wild, so stick around. This is the Lost Mission Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. My name is Don Van and this is the Lost Mission Podcast, where our goal is to help us as believers get back to our mission of knowing and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm glad you joined us today. So today we're going to begin our new series on cults and fringe groups. Maybe not just specifically cults. That's why we've included fringe groups, fringe groups, fringe groups in the list as well. The reason I say cults and fringe groups is because a cult in and of itself is kind of difficult to define. You know, it's hard to look at a group and say, well, this group is a cult because a cult is this. It's hard to say what that is. Walter Martin in his book, The Kingdom of the Cults, defines a cult as any religious group which differs significantly in one or more respects as to belief or practice from those religious groups which are regarded as the normative expressions of religion in our total culture. So to kind of to put that a little bit more simple, we can look at and say a group is basically a, a religious group most of the time that doesn't fall in or under the ideas of orthodoxy within that particular uh, religious group. Now, not all cults are religious, but most of them are. Some groups we discuss may not necessarily fall into that category of being a cult, but are still mostly viewed on the outside, even if they're considered to be orthodox, and is a group that exists on the fringes of society and religion. So, cults and fringe groups, all right? <laughs> but before we get into the video, if you like this channel, please consider subscribing and hitting the like button. It really helps the channel out a lot. I would appreciate it. If you would, um, subscribe, hit the like button. All right, Jehovah's Witnesses. Who, who is this group? Who are they? Who are Jehovah's Witnesses? Well, uh, Wikipedia <laughs> defines Jehovah's Witnesses as such. Jehovah's Witnesses is a millenarian restorationist Christian denomination with non-Trinitarian beliefs distinct from mainstream Christianity. The group reports a worldwide membership of approximately 8.7 million adherents involved in evangelism and an annual memorial service attendance of over 17 million. Jehovah's Witnesses are directed by the governing body of Jehovah's Witnesses, a group of elders in Warwick, New York, in the United States, and we'll talk about that more in a little bit, which establishes all doctrines based on its interpretations of the Bible. They believe that the destruction of the present world system at Armageddon is imminent, and the establishment of God's kingdom over the earth is the only solution for all problems faced by humanity. Like I said, that's from Wikipedia. When we think about Jehovah's Witnesses, they're, they're actually very prevalent in culture. Um, there may be some people that, in pop culture, famous people that you may not have known are Jehovah's Witnesses. A few famous Jehovah's Witnesses. Michael Jackson, President Dwight Eisenhower, actually had connections to the group growing up. Prince converted to the Watchtower Society in 2001. Damon Wayans, Venus and Serena Williams, Tennis Stars sisters. Michelle Rodriguez of the Fast and Furious franchise. Actor, comedian, rapper, Donald Glover. Uh, actor Terrence Howard. All of these people either are active 
JWs or at some point have been involved in and with Jehovah's Witnesses. But that's more modern. But what about the history of this group? How did they start? Where did they begin? Let's talk about it. In the early 1870s, young, likable, and enthusiastic minister Charles Taze Russell began a Bible study group just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Early on in his life, Russell had become sort of disenfranchised and frustrated with organized religion, with Christianity. Uh, He went through a period where he was somewhat agnostic, didn't know if he believed in God, didn't know how he felt. And this was in his very early um, days, very young um, Charles Russell had these doubts in his mind. He went through this period of doubt, but quickly he circled back to religion, came back to Christianity, and when he returned, Russell was influenced by specifically two groups in Christianity, one of those being the Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists strongly hold to a literal Sabbath worship on Saturday. They're very apocalyptic in their views, and that influenced Russell. He became very apocalyptic. He was also influenced by a smaller group known as the Christadelphians. And Christadelphians, it's, it's for both of these groups, Seventh-day Adventists and Christadelphians, it's hard to say whether they would be something that we would consider a cult or not. But Christadelphians deny the Trinity. They actually claim the Trinity is not only unbiblical, but is possibly even satanic. They teach a works-based salvation, which would play large into Russell and the Jehovah's Witnesses later on in life. But when we think of Russell, his early years were spent in a fairly normal church setting. I believe he was brought up Presbyterian, um, but he, he always had sort of a fascination with the darker side of Christianity, with the apocalyptic elements which is undoubtedly why he was influenced by the Seventh-day Adventists later on. But J.H. Gerstner, in his book, The Theology of the Major Sex, had this to say about Russell. Evidently his, Russell's, youth was dominated by morbid pictures of a sizzling hell. For as a boy, he used to go around the city of Pittsburgh every Saturday evening and write signs with chalk on the fences, warning people to attend church on the following Sabbath that they might escape the ghastly torments of everlasting fire. From this fiery orthodoxy, Russell, when he found himself unable to answer certain questions of a skeptic, passed over into frigid unbelief. It was then that he met the Seventh-day Adventist, and his faith in Christianity, especially the Second Advent, was restored. So Russell circles back to, he has this very apocalyptic view of Christianity. He would go about and tell people, basically, (laughs) on Saturday evenings, come to church tomorrow or you're going to burn in hell. (laughs) That was his perspective. And he he falls out until the Seventh-day Adventists come back and they, they kind of help young Russell. So after beginning his Bible study in 1870, Charles became an editor for a small New York based magazine. And quickly, quickly, Russell kind of gets in his own way. He falls out of fellowship with the magazine, falls out of favor with the magazine over a doctrinal dispute um, over the atonement of Christ. And that really begins the genesis of his group. He then moves on to begin his own publication, which would eventually become what is known today as the Watchtower and Awake magazines. And these publications are still um, around today. They're still available. Jehovah's Witnesses still pass those out. You may have had an Awake or a Watchtower magazine given to you before. So Russell goes and he starts these publications, or starts what would later become 
these these two publications. During his time as head of the Watchtower organization, um, which was incorporated in 1884, Russell was very focused on publication of literature. That was one of his, his goals, was to get as much literature out there as he could. He even went so far as to write a six-volume um, series of books titled Studies in the Scripture. Now, later on, a seventh volume was written and was attributed to him, I believe, after his death, even though likely Russell himself didn't write it. But here's the thing about the studies in scriptures. Russell, when he wrote the studies in scriptures, he really believed that he was writing under divine inspiration, that these books were were from God, that he was writing to them almost a, a new, not revelation, but was giving to them a new sense of scripture. Nowadays, I believe the Jehovah's Witnesses don't look at it with such high regard. They don't believe it to be divinely inspired. And for the most part, it's been discarded. Um, I believe you can still find copies of um, studies in the scriptures either online or to order them. But Jehovah's Witnesses don't use them as much as they did in their early days. But Russell himself felt like he was writing something that came from God. See See the difference early on? of how Jehovah's Witnesses would change their perspectives. And we'll see this as a theme carried on throughout the group. Russell believed it to be inspired. The group fell in line with it. Over time, maybe not so much. We'll see that theme carried on. Russell had to fight through some legal battles. (laughs) Things weren't perfect with Russell and his life and the growth of the movement. Battles involving money. There was a great court case over Miracle Wheat, which we just won't get into. If you're interested in that, do some research, the Miracle Wheat uh, dispute. There's a lot of documentation surrounding that. Um, And then eventually, later on, he would split from his wife with accusations of immoral behavior, even though she didn't expressly um, accuse Russell of committing adultery. There was still some, some shady things that were going on. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay, so when I first set out to study Jehovah's Witnesses and to talk about this group, I really didn't want to bring Charles Taze Russell or any of the group and and their their personal matters into the conversation. I wanted to focus on the founding of the group, doctrine, and the such like. But as it goes with these groups, you can't separate their personal lives from their organization. They just go hand in hand. And my, my goal was to only speak about the beliefs, dangers surrounding the group, leave their personal lives out of the conversation, and I still want to stay away from that type of talk as much as I can. I'm not here to character um, blast anybody. I'm not here to assassinate any person's character. That's not my goal. I, I don't want to do that with these groups. But some personal things are very important to the conversation because it really speaks to the flippant perspective that these groups have on their own doctrines and on their own beliefs. Jehovah's Witnesses have seemingly no issue with changing core elements of what they believe almost on a whim. They, they do. They, they, they falter, and when they see something falter, well, they'll just they'll adapt to that, that faltering, and they'll change their view on it. This is what I'm, this is what I'm talking about. This faltering, this, this changing of, uh, of ideas is exemplified so well in Charles Taze Russell and his marriage to Maria Ackley. In 1879, Charles Taze Russell and Maria Ackley were wed, and the new Mrs. Russell was quite taken with her husband. Uh, Maria Ackley fell head over heels for Charles Taze Russell. She was in love with this man by all indications. 
Him, maybe not so much with her. But as she grew closer to him, she obviously gained more influence within Jehovah's Witnesses and within the group. Uh, she became one of Russell's strongest supporters. She acted as an editor for his writings. She spoke at women's conferences, which will bear important later on. Uh, she acted as a secretary treasurer for the Watchtower Society and even authored a book entitled The Twain One, in which she apparently described herself as um, and Russell as God's mouthpiece. So she was so um, in love with this man, she wrote a book, The Twain One, where she believed her and Charles Russell were twain. They were one. <laughs> but in his book... Um, Apocalypse Delay, James Penton says this of the strange relationship between the couple. Like I said, Maria Ackley was in love with Russell. But James Penton says this. Um, he, Russell, uh, simply preferred to live a, quote, celibate life. But the case must have been quite different with her, although she had agreed and expressed the same as her preference at their trial for divorce from bed and board, her attorney attempted to make out of this that she was deprived of one of the chief pleasures of life. So Russell didn't want much to do with Marie Ackley, but Marie Ackley felt neglected by her husband. Mrs. Russell carried on with her work, though. So Charles Taze Russell, he marries Maria Ackley. They don't live together. They don't consummate the marriage, but they go on. And seemingly all is well. They... they carry on in almost sort of a business partnership. And that's strange. But the story goes on and things get a little bit more bizarre. In her promotion of Russell, she began to refer to Charles as the, quote, faithful and wise servant of Matthew 24, 45. Uh, this was a title that Russell, while he didn't proclaim it for himself, he was more than happy to let Maria Ackley and others refer to him as such. Even after his death, there's evidence in Watchtower publications of them referring to him as the faithful and wise servant of Matthew 24, 45. He may not have said it about himself, but he was more than happy to let somebody say that about him. But things changed over time, and things got ugly. In 1895, uh, Russell requested a separation from Maria because he felt she had become too powerful in the ministry. Uh, remember those women's groups that I mentioned earlier that she would go and speak at? Well, she gained great influence through these women's groups and gained a lot of power. They were listening to Maria, and Charles didn't like that. He didn't like it one bit. He had this to say. Once the the couple began to separate and there were problems in the home and um, Charles was attempting to regain influence within his own group. He told his followers this. He told them not to receive or harbor or entertain my wife under your roof under any pretext whatsoever. Charles Taze Russell tells his own followers, his own uh, members within his group, don't accept my wife in your house at all for any reason at all. Don't let her in your home. Meanwhile, Maria had a few things of her own to say. Previously, she had referred to him as the faithful and wise servant of Matthew 24 or 45. But now she's changed her perspective. She no longer views Charles Taze Russell as the faithful and wise servant, but rather she looks at him as the evil servant spoken of just a few short verses later. She would go on to make accusations of possible moral misconduct with their adopted daughter and another female servant, 
uh, but never accuse him of adultery. So I'm not sure exactly what her accusations were, what she was getting at, whether it was a defamation of character thing, whether Russell was really involved in some inappropriate way with these young ladies. I don't know, but she accused Charles Taze Russell, but she never said that he committed adultery. So possibly it was slander, um, just an attack on Russell. It's, it's really unclear. But Maria Ackley flips her entire perspective. She had heralded him as almost a pseudo-fulfillment of, of almost a biblical prophecy. The, in Matthew 24, 45, when you read of this faithful and this wise servant, that's my husband, that's Charles. But when there's problems in the home, she changes it. It says, no, 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 he's not that. He's the evil servant. See how quickly things change and how the entire perspective, the narrative that is driven by the group, shifts just that quickly. So after the accusations, this led Russell to making a vow to never be left alone in a room with a woman by himself again. Never again would he do this. Good move, right? Great idea on Russell's part. But it gets it gets worse for Russell. The Washington Post in 1906 quoted Russell during the trial as saying this. This is a direct quote from the Washington Post. I am like a jellyfish said the reverend culprit. I float around and I touch this one and that one, and if they respond, I embrace them. What a creepy thing to say. Why would Russell go about and say that I'm like a jellyfish? Charles Taze Russell, what is what is going on with your mind? He says, I'm like a jellyfish. I float around and I touch and and, and whoever wants to wants to touch me back, well I'll just give them a big embrace. No, not not a good move. Eventually, the couple would divorce. They would entirely split altogether. Marie Ackley goes her way. Charles Taze Russell goes his way as the head of the Watchtower organization. But there was apparently some sort of reconciliation between the two. They 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 weren't they didn't come back together as husband and wife. But at his funeral, it is said that Maria put a bouquet of flowers on his casket with a ribbon bearing the words. To my beloved husband. Okay, so why is that important? Why why should we just bring up these old, old accusations surrounding Russell and Maria Ackley and kind of their falling out with one another? Um, Like I mentioned, notice the way that Maria Ackley taught that her husband was this almost fulfillment of biblical prophecy. She would go to women's groups and teach that he was this person. But when it was no longer convenient for her, no longer convenient for the group, she changes her mind. She changes her position. Jehovah's Witnesses are infamous for this. The group will pivot and change and act like they never uh, believed a certain doctrine. We never thought that, never felt that way in the first place. When that doctrine is no longer convenient for them, now, this is deceptive. Now, this is dangerous. And, and that's just not how the Bible works. The Bible doesn't change when it no longer fits your view. Also, notice the abuse of the members. Maria Ackley is forced out of the group. No members were to fellowship with her. Nobody was to allow her into their home. Again, this is not biblical doctrine. That is not how that we as Christians are to conduct ourselves. We are, we are to love the hurting. We are to express love for our brothers and for our sisters, not to shun people. Um, this is vindictive. This is this is completely unchristian altogether. All right, um, I, I do want to say this. I'm not against a Christian that changes their their belief on a certain doctrine. 
I've done that over the years. And if and if you're a good student of Scripture, I hope and pray that, that, that as you have grown in your faith, you have also changed some of your perspectives on biblical doctrines. So there is a difference, I feel, there. We should always be open to the idea of change uh, and correction. But this is not what we see within the Jehovah's Witnesses organization. They change doctrines regularly, making their organization hard to follow. Well, what do they believe? Well, um, in the late 1800s, they believed this. Then in 1915, they believed this. In 1925, they believed another thing. In 1975, another thing. And so the, the doctrines change. And when they do change, they tend to act like they never believed what they once saw as maybe a core belief in their own doctrine. So when an entire movement shuns a belief and then it is brought back up to them, well, don't you guys believe this? No, we've never thought that. That's not what we said. It's it's dishonest. It's it's deceptive. And that's not, again, that is not how the Bible works. But But Russell goes on and he carries on believing himself to be something great that he is over the organization. His works are divinely inspired. He can push people out, even his own wife, whenever he feels like it. He's, he has such a an inflated sense of self-importance and of self-worth until I believe really his life can be summed up pretty good in this, in this quote from, I believe it's from Walter Martin in his book, Kingdom of the Cults. Furthermore, not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself, but we see also that if anyone lays the scripture studies aside, his writing, studies in the scriptures, lays the scripture studies aside, even after he has used them, after he has become familiar with them, and after he has read them for 10 years, if he then lays them aside and ignores them and goes to the Bible alone. Though he has understood his Bible for 10 years, our experience shows that within two years, he goes into darkness. On the other hand, if he had merely read the scripture studies with their references and not read a page of the Bible, as such, he would be in light at the end of two years because he would have he would have the light of the scriptures. Russell was so driven by his own pride, by his own ego, that he truly believed that one could not just take the Bible, open it, read it, and study it without falling into error. They had to have his companion writings to help them, to guide them through the Bible. And that's how Russell lived. That's how he conducted the organization. In 1916, Russell died, and his successor, Judge Joseph F. Rutherford, took control of the society. And when Judge Rutherford takes control, there's a shift, obviously, and a change. Uh, Rutherford, really, he's, he's, he's kind of a mixed bag. Um, he's just as energetic in some ways, and maybe in some ways more so than uh, Charles Russell. What he does, on the one hand, Rutherford is almost militant in his attacks against organized religion. So if, if, if Russell was apocalyptic, the end is coming, then Rutherford takes that narrative and runs forward, and he becomes militant. The Catholic Church, the Protestant movement, um, anybody that is not a part of the Jehovah's Witnesses, he begins to portray them as enemies of God. And still to this day, Jehovah's Witnesses feel that way. He was almost militant in his attacks on organized religion, sending out members of the group door to door uh, <laughs> with, with, with small phonographs and recordings of his 
sermons. Um, and one of which began this way. Th- these are the words of Joseph Rutherford. The church organizations, both Catholic and Protestant, are ruled by priests and pastors, otherwise known as clergymen. And these violently oppose the message of the Bible, which Jehovah's Witnesses are carrying to the people. The clergymen claim to represent God and Christ, and Jehovah's Witnesses claim that they serve God and Christ. Then why should the clergy oppose the message of the Jehovah's Witnesses? Correct answer given in the Bible. So imagine this. <clears throat> imagine you're you're sitting around your table sometime in the late 1930s. Um, you're sitting around the table Saturday morning having breakfast with your family. You hear a knock on the door. Not unlike things go in present day situations. But you hear a knock on the door. You open the door and there's two nicely dressed gentlemen there. And they <laughs> they have with them some literature and not not just literature, but they have a full-on record player tucked under their arm. And they want to come in and open this record player, put on a record of one of Joseph Rutherford's sermons, and tell you that the end is coming, that all Christians are the enemy, and the only way for you to be safe from this apocalypse is that you have to join up with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And if that wasn't enough... If that wasn't enough, not only would they show up with these record players in hand, and it really happened, uh, but they would drive around the cities and towns with large loudspeakers mounted to the tops of their vehicles and and broadcast broadcast um, old radio broadcasts of Joseph Rutherford's sermons. This really was one of their tactics. So that's 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 how they felt on the one hand <clears throat> that organized religion was bad. And they were going to show you how by any means necessary. On the other hand, though, Rutherford was responsible for the splitting of the group and the forming of what we now know as Jehovah's Witnesses. So, on the one hand, he's trying to destroy Christianity and Protestantism and, and uh, Catholicism. But on the other hand, he's wanting to build the Jehovah's Witnesses and organize them. See the sort of double standard here? Rutherford claimed to be against authoritarianism of the churches, all the while setting himself up and the Jehovah's Witnesses as the ultimate religious authority. It was a power move. So it was under the Jehovah's Witnesses, or under Rutherford, that Jehovah's Witnesses began to focus on uh, Jehovah of the Old Testament. Uh, Charles Russell seemed to be more focused on the Christ of the New. Under Rutherford, they focused on the Jehovah of the Old Testament. Um, During his time, Rutherford did not tolerate dissent or disagreement within the organization. Um, Back to how Charles Taze Russell handled things, um, Rutherford implements that um, throughout the entire group. And this sad practice is still in, in place today, and it has led to much pain and to much heartbreak for many former Jehovah's Witnesses. That if you disagree, there's a chance you may be disfellowshipped, you may be shunned by the group, by your family. There's a price to pay. So since, since his death, uh, power switched hands several times. Several times. There's been several other presidents. Nathan Knorr. Nathan North served as president of the group from 1942 until his death in 1977. During Nathan North's time as president over the group, the Jehovah's Witnesses exploded. 
the the organization grew from uh, just over one hundred thousand when he took over in nineteen forty two to over two million at his death in nineteen seventy seven. Um, even considering that nineteen seventy five was a very important year for Jehovah's Witnesses, it was supposed to be the year of the Armageddon, the year everything ended. God was going to kill all of humanity and the world would enter into a Sabbath rest as the millennial reign would begin in 1975. And this didn't happen. This affected the numbers. However, in 1977, they still boasted over 2 million members. Uh, We'll talk more about the failed prophecies in a later video, and we'll talk about 1975. Other presidents of the group, Frederick Franz, Milton G. Henschel, Don Adams, and Robert Serenko, But it's not only been a president that has presided over the Jehovah's Witnesses. They are governed by a governing body. All right. So more important than the president of the organization is the governing body. In 2000, the Watchtower Society made a decision to separate administrative functions from spiritual functions within the group. Um, They they had always had a sort of division, but, but officially they made that choice around 2000. This was an attempt to fully establish the group as a theocracy, a group that is ran in their view by God, rather than as a democracy, a group that is ran by man and controlled by the people. Uh, The governing body consists of several different committees with various duties. They they do various different things with, with applications that are spiritual coming from the governing body. These committees consist of teaching committees, serving committees, writing committees, etc., And if I understand correctly, the governing body can actually reach out to the administrative body, which is where the president of the group would would preside, for assistance. But the administrative body can't really reach out to the governing body. So, And they do that to separate the spiritual from the sort of administrative, if I understand the group correctly. But at the local level, that's, that's the higher level. The governing body runs things. At the local level... Jehovah's Witnesses gather at small, usually somewhat simple structures called Kingdom Halls. Here's more from the Kingdom of the Cults. Prospective members are encouraged to commit themselves to the society as quickly as possible and become members through baptism by immersion at the local congregational level. New members must immediately begin training for field work by spending time with older members as they conduct their own field work. In the past, publishers were witnesses who committed an average of 1,200 hours per year in fieldwork, including door-to-door recruitment, sidewalk soliciting, and book studies with prospective and new members. Those who dedicated a significantly greater amount of time than the 1,200 hours earned the title Pioneer to distinguish them from the publishers. Groups meeting together are called congregations, but the places where they meet are called kingdom halls, and not churches. Members appointed from higher up for leadership are called overseers or elders. The person who leads the elder meetings is called the presiding overseer of the congregation. The service overseer handles service business within the congregation. Ministerial servants are delegated administrative responsibilities as assistants to the elders. Circuits are organizations of around 20 congregations supervised by a circuit overseer. Circuits organize twice a year conventions for their members' congregations. Districts are geographical collections of circuits, 22 are in the U.S. 
the district overseer organizes the annual district convention at which all new teachings and rules from the governing body are announced to the members and at which new publications are presented. Collections of districts are called branches and collections of branches are zones and the Brooklyn Society is called the headquarters. Okay, so a lot is said there from the kingdom of the cults. And I know we mentioned Brooklyn. They have moved from uh, Brooklyn to, to a new location. Here's the hierarchy sort of in, in a nutshell. The people. You have prospective members, sometimes called students. Just above them are publishers who have less than 1,200 hours of field work. Then you have pioneers who have more than 1,200 hours of field work. And then there are various degrees of overseers and elders. And all of this is led by the governing body. So that's the people within the Jehovah's Witnesses. The organization itself, at the local level, you have the kingdom hall or the congregations. Then just above that, you have a circuit. Above that, you have a district. Above those are branches. Above those are zones. And this is all controlled by the headquarters. So there are no pastors, preachers, or paid ministers in kingdom halls. The groups meet on Sundays. I believe they meet on other days as well for Bible study. And during the meetings, they refer to one another often as brother and sister with a high emphasis on dress and on clothing. Men often wear suits and ties. Women wear skirts and blouses. Actually, according to one former Jehovah's Witness, Lloyd Evans, who runs a YouTube channel devoted entirely to Jehovah's Witnesses' practices from a former Jehovah's Witness perspective. Lloyd Evans makes this this event when he talks about his final days in Jehovah's Witnesses. It makes the, the meetings sound far more important than they are because of the emphasis on dress, because of the emphasis on the way that they look. Um, now, I'm not saying that to influence anyone's sort of Sunday best. Many times I will wear a suit to church on Sundays. I'm not against dressing up. But if we believe that our attire somehow affects our importance within the kingdom of Christ, well, it doesn't. It doesn't affect us at all. God doesn't look on um, the outward. He looks on the heart. So they come together. And during this gathering, a baptized male age 20 or older will give a Bible study. The material is highly regulated by the group and creativity is greatly discouraged. So no sort of extemporaneous talks are given and nothing just off the cuff is said. Most talks are more of a script read by an unskilled speaker um, spoken in a very low, uh, monotone voice. Uh, hymns are sung. Uh, there's a, sometimes a time of question and answer. They have their business elements they go over. So in many ways, it's not unlike what we would consider a church service. There, it may not be very exciting to, to attend at times, but they go and they have their meetings. Hymns are sung, time of question and answer. Obviously, though, all everything that they do is done from the perspective of the Jehovah's Witnesses and from the Watchtower. It is so regulated by the headquarters, so nobody can defer. They must believe what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that anyone outside of their organization is God's enemy. They affirm this. You can go back and look at video content of current Jehovah's Witness leadership in their, their talks, in their conferences, in their videos. They will refer to outsiders as enemies. They believe, they believe that if you are a Christian and not a Jehovah's Witness, that you are the enemy of God and you are their enemy. 
And while they may present themselves in a loving and a kind and a caring way, they believe that you are their enemy. So the history of Jehovah's Witnesses is a rich and winding tale of power, of structure, and of authoritarianism, and of deception. They are an enthusiastic group, for sure. And I actually applaud their evangelistic efforts. I feel like that most churches could sort of take a cue from Jehovah's Witnesses and could get out there and could beat the streets a little bit more, could knock on doors a little bit more, could be as active in the sharing of their faith as Jehovah's Witnesses are in the sharing of their faith, which is a false faith. Sadly, they are energetic about a system that, as I hope we see in coming weeks, is full of lies, abuse, deceit, and false doctrine. And all of that, guys, is coming up in the future. This is a quick overview of the Jehovah's Witnesses, their history, their organizational structure, what they believe. But guys, that's going to do it for this one. For now, that's it for part one. Grace and peace. Guys, I hope you have a great week. I'll catch you next time.